The air inside the auditorium of Alice Johnson Junior High felt electric. At least it did to 35-year-old Wanda Holloway. Though the gymnasium looked a little run down, Wanda felt a kind of magic in the air. She was perched high in the bleachers, excited that this moment had finally come. On the gym floor below, cheerleaders in bright uniforms ruffled their pom-poms. They giggled with each other, whispering secrets behind their tinsel accessories. Wanda smiled, thinking about what her own daughter, Shanna, might look like in one of those uniforms. That was the goal. Shanna, a cheerleader at long last. And today, after another arduous year of training, the tryouts were finally here. As she watched Shanna emerge from the locker room, she gave her an excited wave. The teen waved back, looking a little nervous. Wanda was nervous too. She shook a sign emblazoned with Shanna's name, a tingle of anxiety in her stomach. And then Amber Heath, one of the teenage cheerleader hopefuls, took her place in line alongside Shanna. In response, Wanda pursed her lips, agitated. In a lot of ways, Amber was like Shanna, young, smart, and pretty. But Amber was already on the squad. She had the advantage. And with a limited number of open spaces, success was far from guaranteed. If Shanna didn't make the team this year, Wanda didn't know what she'd do. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're wrapping up our Mother's Day special on Wanda Holloway. Last week, we learned about Wanda's early life in Channel View, Texas, and her growing obsession with securing her daughter a place on the school cheerleading team. Today, we're delving into the shocking murder-for-hire plot that took Texas and the world of cheerleading by storm. As 1989 melted into 1990 in Channel View, the end of the school year suddenly felt a lot closer. For many students, the countdown to summer began as they sat in those first January classes. But to 35-year-old Wanda Holloway, the new year meant something else entirely. It had brought her dream that much closer. Wanda's daughter, Shanna, was halfway through the seventh grade. And despite their best efforts, the 12-year-old was not on the school's cheerleading squad. 
This reality belied the effort the mother-daughter duo had put towards that singular goal. Preparations had begun long before the initial sixth grade tryouts. In Texas, cheerleading was taken seriously, and Wanda expected the competition to be stiff. Hours had been sacrificed for gymnastics and dance classes, even more extreme, whenever Wanda felt that Shanna needed to train harder, she completed her daughter's homework for her while Shanna practiced. Indeed, so great was the obsession that a set of matching cheerleader uniforms was among the pair's several coordinated outfits. This last factor not only symbolized their fixation with cheerleading, it embodied the depth of their bond. Wanda and Shanna were exceedingly close. By their own admissions, they were each other's best friend. Before we continue with Wanda's psychology, please note I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to Dr. Kit Harrison, who was familiar with the case, Wanda and Shanna shared a symbiotic relationship. In nature, symbiosis typically indicates that two animals or organisms rely on each other for survival. In humans, however, the term can apply to a number of relationships, parent and child, romantic partners, and even close siblings. While symbiosis in the wild is a necessity for survival, in people it can be a toxic emotional crutch. According to clinical social worker and therapist Katie Hauser, a toxic symbiotic relationship can remove the autonomy from one or both participants. It also reduces the opportunity for internal validation and independence. The child in a symbiotic relationship learns early on that in order to please their parents, they have to succeed. Although this success can take many forms, in the Holloway family, it seemed to have centered around the determination to make Shanna a cheerleader at all costs. Shanna herself later admitted that she quickly realized cheerleading just wasn't that fun for her. However, even if she wanted to stop, her mother was her whole world. She wanted more than anything to please her. So she kept up with her training. Ultimately, it all came to nothing. At the tryouts in March of 1989, Shanna had performed well, but she came third in the popular vote carried out amongst the student body. One of the slots she'd coveted had gone to Amber Heath, a girl Shanna knew from her former school. Aside from the fact that Amber was on the cheerleading team and Shanna wasn't, the two girls were a lot alike. Just like their mothers, both girls were known to take pride in their appearance. Their hair was always perfectly coiffed, their outfits were impeccable, and they carried themselves with poise. Both were also on the school's honor roll and held spots on their class governments. Like Shanna, Amber's mother, Verna, was excited for her daughter to join the cheerleading squad at Alice Johnson Middle School. The women in her family had long displayed a knack for athletic performance. Amber's grandmother, Joyce, had competed in barrel racing at rodeos as a young woman. When she married, she opened up a studio offering classes in dance, baton twirling, gymnastics, and piano. Verna herself was a twirling champion in high school. Verna raised her daughter with the same insistence on perfection. And as a result, Amber Heath had been winning twirling competitions since she was a toddler. 
Like Wanda, Verna had also insisted that Amber train hard to win a place on the cheerleading team the previous year. Leaving nothing to chance, the Heaths also handed out Heath candy bars during the voting phase. Not only was the candy a great incentive for teens, it encouraged name recognition for Amber. When the 1990 tryouts for the squad came up again, 35-year-old Wanda Holloway took inspiration from her rival's tactics. She wanted to find a way to help her daughter drum up more votes. And if she had to buy that popularity, then that was exactly what she would do. However, following the 1989 tryouts, the school had decided to instigate new rules. The audition would work in the same way, each girl performing in front of the school and a panel of college cheerleaders. Then, six finalists would campaign for the open slots, and the student body would vote. The 1990 voting phase is where things were being pared back. The school board decided to limit the number of posters each hopeful girl could hang in the hallways, and, crucially, they forbade the tactic of handing out candy bars. But Wanda saw nothing in the rules about the distribution of other favors or trinkets to help sway opinion in her daughter's favor. Doing so had apparently been something of a tradition, and perhaps Wanda felt that not participating had negatively impacted Shanna's chances. So Wanda turned to Shanna's father, her ex-husband, Tony Harper. Tony suggested handing out pencils and rulers with Shanna's name engraved on them, it was a suggestion born out of practicality. As we discussed last week, Channel View was a town dominated by industry, and the median income was not high. Tony felt that kids would like a new addition to their stationary supply halfway through the year. Wanda loved the idea, so she split the $200 cost with Tony for several hundred pencils and rulers emblazoned with the words, Vote for Shanna. Now, with the day of the tryouts looming, everything was ready for Wanda and her daughter to triumph at last. Once again, Wanda and the mothers of the other girls watched the tryouts from the bleachers with the rest of the school. When the judges announced the finalists, Shanna was yet again amongst their number. Her years of hard work had shown dividends. Now for the final hurdle. But before voting began, the parents of the finalists were asked to attend a meeting to go over the rules of the election. Wanda asked about handing out Shanna's pencils and rulers. They weren't candy after all. But she was told that any gifts were forbidden. Wanda was frustrated by the news. She'd already forked out money for the favors, and now they would go to waste. But ever ready to roll with the punches, she moved on to a new plan. Together, she and Shanna made flyers in the shape of cheerleading megaphones. Sparkling with glitter and bearing Shanna's name, they made for eye-catching handouts during the vote. But during the craft spree, Wanda realized she hadn't bought enough wooden paint stirrers to act as handles for the megaphones. She used some of the customized rulers as handles instead. And so, the next morning, Shanna arrived at school with a couple dozen brightly colored megaphone flyers, 15 of them fitted with Shanna-branded rulers as handles. 
At some stage during the school day, the engraved rulers were spotted. A meeting was called between the school's vice principal and assistant superintendent for Channelview and the school's cheerleading coach. The coach had spoken to mothers of the other girls competing for the spots, and with everything taken into consideration, a decision was made. Wanda and Shanna were summoned to the school's office the next morning. In a private meeting with the principal, they were told that they had breached the clearly delineated rules. As a result, Shanna was disqualified from the competition. Wanda was distraught. So while Shanna took herself back to class to finish out the day, her 35-year-old mother sat in the principal's office and sobbed. As she left, Wanda reportedly took blame for the rulers. It was she and her husband who had made the mistake, not Shanna. But it was no use. The decision was final. For the second year in a row, Wanda's dream of having a cheerleader daughter had been denied. To better understand Wanda's intense drive to get Shanna on the cheerleading squad, it's helpful to know more about the role of high school sports in small Texas towns. In his seminal book, Friday Night Lights, H.G. Bissinger pointed out that football players and cheerleaders were the celebrities of their towns. However, Wanda had never enjoyed the esteemed lights of Friday night. Her dream of becoming a cheerleader was extinguished before it even began. In pushing Shanna so hard, perhaps Wanda was trying to ensure the same fate never befell her. Perhaps she was trying to make her daughter's high school years as remarkable as possible. Communication professor Brad Bushman suggests that pushing a child towards one's own missed opportunities can help alleviate feelings of regret. Whatever glory their child may achieve is then reflected back upon the parents, helping them finally feel a sense of accomplishment. In a simplified way of stating things, it's parents living vicariously through their children. Only now, Wanda had tripped Shanna up halfway through the race. She'd been so busy trying to help that she hadn't stopped to consider that she might be doing harm to her daughter's chances. Wanda initially blamed herself for Shanna's disqualification, but she soon found an alternative culprit, Verna Heath. In Wanda's mind, Verna had been a rival since the previous year's tryouts, this negative view of the other woman was exacerbated by the fact that Wanda knew Verna had been in the meeting with the other moms. Before long, Wanda was telling anyone who would listen that Verna Heath had been conspiring against her. According to a friend, Wanda was sure that the other hopeful cheerleader moms had hatched a plot to actively keep Shanna off the squad. As the days rolled by, Wanda's fixation on the injustice of it all only grew. Not only was she angry with Verna for rigging the competition against Shanna, she was furious with Amber for stealing the spot that should have been her daughter's. As far as anyone can tell, neither of these things actually happened. Verna Heath was simply a mother who, like Wanda, wanted to see her daughter succeed. Neither Amber nor her mother had set out to keep Shanna off the squad, but by this stage, Wanda's frustration had blurred her vision. 
she was no longer seeing things clearly. For all of her mother's increasingly paranoid thoughts, Shanna herself had come to a sobering realization. The 12-year-old didn't much care to be a cheerleader after all, or so she reportedly confessed to her father. It seems that the symbiosis between mother and daughter was beginning to weaken, at least on Shanna's end. According to a 2013 study out of the Netherlands, the more closely a parent aligns their own personality and being with that of their child, the stronger they'll push to achieve their dreams through that child. But as children in symbiotic relationships grow older, they can begin to shake off the shackles and seek out their own autonomy. Shanna, it seems, was realizing that the dream of being a cheerleader wasn't hers. It belonged to Wanda. And it was a dream her mother intended to see come true the following year, come hell or high water. By the time Shanna had entered the eighth grade, her mother had made up her mind. It's not clear exactly who gave Wanda the idea, but in September of 1990, she took steps to enact her new plan. She was going to have Amber and Verna Heath killed. Up next, Wanda Holloway's deadly new plan takes shape. Now back to the story. In the fall of 1990, 36-year-old Wanda Holloway was on a mission. After spending years preparing her daughter to be a cheerleader, her dream had been stolen from her, twice. Now, with seemingly little else on her mind, she decided to take drastic action. Several people close to Wanda recalled mentioning, in jest, that she should have Amber Heath or her mother, Verna, killed. Wanda's endless tirades against her and her daughter's perceived rivals had driven family and friends alike to the point of sarcasm. But joke or not, Wanda had taken the suggestions to heart. Along with the sarcastic quips, Wanda also received sound advice from several of her friends to let the whole thing go. Tony Harper, Shanna's father, was especially sick of the whole episode. He blamed Wanda's use of the banned rulers during the election for Shanna's disqualification. This was her doing, and hers alone. Tony's parents, Shanna's grandparents, suggested that the 13-year-old was capable of making next year's squad on her own, so long as Wanda just let her try out without scheming. But Wanda wasn't content to leave her dreams in the hands of others. She'd tried training her daughter harder, as Verna had done. She had tried buying votes, as Verna had done. Neither had produced results. So, in Wanda's mind, there was only one option left. Verna and Amber Heath had to die. The drastic leap in logic this took is difficult to understand, but when looking closely at what we know about Wanda, it's possible to draw some conclusions about what might have been going on. For years, Wanda had poured countless hours into fulfilling her own scuppered dream. Now, having been denied it yet again, she may have experienced the sunk cost effect. 
This peculiar quirk of human nature suggests that when an individual has spent a lot of time, energy, or money on something, they're more likely to continue pursuing it. This fairly straightforward concept evolves into the sunk cost fallacy, when a person allows this logic to take them past the usual point of no return. Despite a detrimental return on investment, the sunk cost fallacy can dictate that someone plows ahead heedless of the dangers. Wanda Holloway had spent so much time and effort chasing down this dream. Now, despite her best efforts, she had no dividends to show. In her mind, the only thing she could do was double down she would eliminate her biggest competition. She just needed to figure out how. Wanda knew that she didn't want to carry out the deed herself, but she definitely wanted Amber and Verna Heath out of her way. This church-going, middle-class mom had very few leads when it came to criminal connections, but she did know one person. Wanda's first husband, Tony Harper, had a younger brother, Terry, from an early age, Terry had been mixed up in the seedier side of Channelview. The 35-year-old had used drugs and alcohol since his teens. By his mid-30s, he had six convictions and half a dozen marriages under his belt. 36-year-old Wanda hadn't seen Terry in years, but she knew that he was her best chance for getting the result she wanted. It was a fall afternoon in 1990 when Wanda first reached out to her ex-brother-in-law. She pulled into the trailer park off De Zavala Road and idled her car out front of Terry's double wide. She honked her horn a couple of times and waited. Eventually, Terry emerged. From her car, Wanda called out that she wanted to speak with him, but not here. Bewildered but intrigued, Terry agreed to meet her at a nearby convenience store. Minutes later, Terry parked next to Wanda's Jeep in the parking lot of Bo's Superstop and climbed into her passenger seat. They must have looked an odd pair, the perfectly presented 36-year-old suburban woman of means alongside the somewhat portly laborer. In opening, Wanda warned Terry, this meeting never happened. Then, barely pausing for breath, she asked him how much he loved his niece, Shanna. When he confirmed that he did indeed love her, Wanda told him all about the problem with the Heaths. When she was satisfied that he was up to date, she got to the point at last. She needed his help getting rid of Amber and Verna. Terry was surprised and took a few moments to process what he'd just heard. When he'd gathered his thoughts, he told Wanda that he'd been trying to clean up his act recently. He was currently on probation for drunk driving, so he hoped she would understand when he told her he wanted nothing to do with her scheme. Even if he did, he reasoned, he didn't know anyone who would do such a thing, especially not to a 13-year-old girl. But Wanda pressed him with such desperation. Verna and Amber Heath were ruining her life, they were ruining Shanna's life. Something had to be done. Like many other people, Terry responded with sarcasm. He quipped that Wanda ought to hire a member of the Colombian drug cartel to assassinate the Heaths. 
completely missing the humor, Wanda asked how much something like that might set her back. Incredulous that she'd taken him seriously, Terry hazarded a guess, stating that the hit would cost between five and $20,000. The figure came as a shock to the mother of two. By that stage, Terry was more than ready to be done with the awkward conversation. To placate Wanda, he promised he'd look into it for her. As he pulled out of the parking lot, he sincerely hoped that was the last he'd hear about Amber and Verna Heath. But just a couple of months later, at a Harper family Christmas gathering, Shanna approached her uncle. She handed him a slip of paper and quietly told him that her mother wanted him to call her on that number. Later that night, Terry told his wife Marla about his conversation with Wanda. Like Terry, Marla worried about Wanda's determination to follow through on her plan. Even if Terry didn't help her, the fact that she'd come to him at all had them both paranoid. What if she tried to frame him? He didn't know what to do, but he felt sure that Shanna's father should know about Wanda's murderous plot. A few days later, Terry called Tony and filled him in, and the brothers contacted the Harris County Sheriff's Department. That same day, Terry gave a sworn statement to detectives about Wanda Holloway's intentions. Within days, two experienced cops had been assigned to the case. Detective George Helton and Sergeant Flint Blackwell were part of a task force that responded to gangland crime activity. As a result, murder for hire was under their purview. Detective Helton had, on several occasions, actually posed as a hitman during sting operations. So when Terry Harper's story came across his desk, he was intrigued. The officers met with Terry in early January of 1991 and recorded a phone call he placed to Wanda. Though neither made direct references to having Verna and Amber Heath killed, enough was said to keep the investigation going. In the aftermath, Helton and Blackwell began to set up a sting. In contract murder cases, a police officer, such as Detective Helton, might pose as a hitman and meet with the would-be employer. Next, they would record a conversation about what exactly the person wanted to happen and take payment for the deed. Then, with the evidence secured, an arrest could be made. But in this case, things were a little trickier. A teenage girl's life had been threatened, which made the investigators more cautious about rolling the dice. In addition, it had been so many months since Wanda had first approached Terry, it was possible she'd found someone else to help her in the meantime. Because of this, it was decided that Terry Harper was the best person to carry out the sting. On the evening of January 14, 1991, he met Wanda in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant. He once again climbed into her Jeep for maximum privacy. What Wanda didn't know was that Terry was wearing a wire. As Wanda expressed her fears that Shanna would miss out on being a cheerleader for her entire high school career, Detective Helton and Sergeant Blackwell were listening in from their own car. They heard Terry and Wanda discuss her options. She was positive that Verna was cozying up with the administration of the high school. It was, in fact, something Wanda herself had already been trying to do. 
For the past several months, she'd been volunteering at the school for three days a week. She assisted the school's band director and had become friendly with the PE teacher. However, while Wanda had the PE teacher on her side, she wasn't sure about the cheerleading coach. When Terry could finally get a word in edgewise, he told Wanda that he'd found someone to do the job. He then pressed her for exactly what she wanted the hitman to do. Wanda told him she didn't much care. She just wanted them gone. Following instructions from the police, Terry then turned the conversation to money. He told Wanda that his contact would kill Verna for $2,500. Amber, as a child, was more expensive. Her murder would set Wanda back $5,000. Wanda laughed at the thought of how much it would cost to have her imagined rival killed. While Wanda considered the large sum of money, she spelled out the names of Amber and Verna for Terry to write down. She then gave him a description of Verna's car, along with the registration number. For good measure, she also had him write down the Heath's address. As the investigators had asked, Terry did his best to convince Wanda that only Verna needed to die, not Amber. In the end, she reasoned that Verna's death would likely shake Amber so badly that she wouldn't be able to try out for the squad. Though she clearly relished the thought of taking Amber out of the picture completely, she told Terry, she makes me sick. It was settled. Wanda would pay Terry's contact $2,500 to kill Verna Heath. Arrangements were made for another meeting so Wanda could give Terry a down payment, half the money up front. If she followed through with that plan, the police would have everything they needed to arrest her. All they had to do now was wait. Coming up, Wanda Holloway's scheme makes headlines around the world. Now back to the story. In January of 1991, 36-year-old Wanda Holloway was being watched. Her ex-brother-in-law, Terry Harper, had ratted her out to police after she enlisted his help to look for a hitman to take out her rival, Verna Heath. After Terry had secretly recorded their meeting discussing the murder for hire, he rushed home to call his brother, Wanda's ex-husband, Tony. According to Terry's then-wife, Marla, he gushed to Tony about what had happened. Wanda would surely lose custody of the children. Tony would have Shane and Shanna all to himself. Terry just had to help seal the deal and collect payment from Wanda. As for Wanda, she was ready to put down money for the murder, ready to erase Verna from her life. To that end, another meeting was set for Monday, January 28th. It had been almost a year since Wanda's daughter had missed out on making the cheerleading squad. With the next round of tryouts just a few months away, Wanda knew she had to act quickly. But there was one small hiccup, money. Despite her husband's wealth, Wanda had found it difficult to come up with the $1,250 deposit she needed for the hit. Instead, she told Terry she had a pair of diamond earrings worth at least that much. He suggested that she pawn them for cash, 
but the presentable mother found it distasteful to hawk jewelry to pay for the gruesome murder she planned. So Terry suggested that his contact would take the jewels in lieu of cash. Once the job was done, however, the hitman expected her to pay him in full. He would, of course, return the diamonds once she paid him. This fictional killer was a man of integrity. At around 7 p.m. on January 28th, Wanda dropped her daughter Shanna off at their church. From there, she drove directly to meet Terry in a parking lot. As he had before, Terry got out of his truck and into Wanda's Jeep. Once again, he was set up with a recording device to tape the conversation. Almost immediately, as if nervous to get things over with, Wanda pulled out a small plastic bag. Inside gleamed a pair of diamond earrings. She told him, perhaps feeling proud of her hard-won jewels, that each stone was at least 0.75 carats. After Terry pretended to examine the diamonds, he pocketed them. He then warned Wanda that if she didn't pay up after the job, the killer would come after her. She swore that in one month's time, she would have the full $2,500. Then Terry confirmed, was she sure she wanted to go through with the plan? But by now, Wanda Holloway was committed. In fact, she mused, she wished she had the full $7,500. That way, she could have both Verna and Amber done away with at once. All her problems would be solved. But if she couldn't make that happen, at least she could do this much. Wanda wanted the murder to take place soon, before Verna could help Amber make flyers and posters for the upcoming 1991 election. Though the middle school had banned favors and trinkets, the high school had not. Wanda was determined to take out the competition before she could buy the vote out from under Shanna. What Wanda didn't know was that her conversation was being listened to. By handing over her diamonds, she had sealed her own fate. Just two days later, on January 30th, 1991, Wanda Holloway was arrested. Detective Helton and Sergeant Blackwell approached the well-dressed mother as she arrived home from the grocery store. At that moment, her chief concern was checking on Shanna before she was taken away. The officers allowed her to go inside so she could call her mother to come look after Shanna. Once inside her house, Wanda calmly told her daughter what had happened. Then she changed into a more incarceration-appropriate outfit, removed her jewelry, and went quietly. Wanda Holloway spent a full night behind bars before her husband, C.D., was able to bail her out. When she left the next morning, Wanda reportedly thanked the staff for their kind treatment. She was a good Christian, after all, and had been raised to observe proper civilities. But Miss Manners couldn't save Wanda from what came next. On the evening of January 31st, word of her arrest and of the murder plot broke on the local news. As Channelview residents reeled from the revelation, press from around the world turned their focus to this small industrial corner of Texas. 
the story was too juicy to ignore. While Verna Heath was left to wonder how Wanda could have come to her desperate, dark decision, the media parsed over every tidbit they could. Like Wanda, now known as the pom-pom mom, they were out for blood. Mrs. Holloway! Mrs. Holloway, over here! Did you do it, Mrs. Holloway? News crews camped out in the streets outside the Holloway and Heath homes, desperate for an interview with either of the women. Reporters prowled the school boundaries, offering students $50 to buy their copy of the yearbook. In a time before social media, it was the only way they could get their hands on photographs of the two girls. But while tabloids and respected journalists alike followed the broad strokes of the story with rabid fascination, they missed what was going on behind the scenes. As she awaited trial, 36-year-old Wanda found herself in more legal proceedings. Just as Terry predicted, Tony had decided to seek sole custody of Shane and Shanna. Wanda's refusal to garner counselors for the two teens showed him that she was not fit to make decisions concerning their health. Shane was legally old enough to decide which parent he spent most of his time with. He'd already opted to see his father more than his mother, probably because of the latter's demonstrated favoring of Shanna. Even still, he took part in the custody dispute. Dr. Kit Harrison, who performed a court-ordered evaluation of both Shanna and Shane, diagnosed the symbiotic relationship between the mother and her children. Though Tony hoped to win sole custody, Dr. Harrison felt it best that neither child be deprived of access to Wanda. The bond between mother and child, especially in Shanna's case, was simply too important. As a result of these findings, joint custody was awarded. Tony could regularly take the children to a therapist, but simultaneously, Wanda wouldn't lose access to her kids. The one thing Tony wouldn't budge on was his desire for Shanna to change schools. He felt sure that his 13-year-old daughter would be made a pariah. Despite his wishes, the eighth grader was determined to stay put. According to her friends, she simply avoided any kind of contact with Amber. Though she had nothing to do with the plot against Amber's mother, she clearly felt embarrassed about the messy affair. According to Shanna herself, inside the Holloway residence, it was as if the whole thing had never happened. The family didn't discuss the plot, the trial, or the cheerleading tryouts. Cheerleading was, for the first time in years, a non-event for the family. With fresh perspective, Shanna opted not to try out for cheerleading in March of 1991. Amber Heath, however, did try out. She won her spot for the third year in a row. Meanwhile, Wanda had finally achieved a version of the popularity she'd seemed to want for her daughter all along. Everyone in town knew who she was. And they definitely associated her with cheerleading. But it was all a topsy-turvy version of the way things were supposed to have gone. And they weren't about to get any better. At her trial, Wanda's defense team argued that the whole scheme had been cooked up by Terry and Tony Harper as a way to steal her children. 
They tried to convince the jury that Wanda's remarks about doing away with Amber and Verna Heath were nothing more than jokes. However, when presented with the recordings, the jurors were disinclined to believe Wanda's version of events. As a result, in September of 1991, the jury took just two and a half hours to find Wanda Holloway guilty of solicitation of capital murder. She was sentenced to 15 years in prison. However, the sentence was overturned months later due to an error in jury selection. One of the original jurors had been on probation for a drug charge at the time of trial. This made them ineligible to serve on a jury, causing the sentence to be thrown out. It wouldn't be until 1996 that a legal resolution was finally reached. Wanda struck a deal with prosecutors. She would plead no contest to the charges in exchange for a 10-year probated sentence. This meant that for soliciting the murder of Verna Heath, Wanda only spent six months behind bars before being released in 1997. By the time she was released, life in Channelview had returned to its steady, scandal-free rhythms. In the years since, Wanda Holloway has spoken very little about the events. In addition, she managed to maintain a good relationship with Shanna, though the two are nowhere near as close as they used to be. As for Verna Heath, she decried the effect the plot had on the cheerleading community. It was a shame, she felt, that all cheerleader moms were now painted as crazed women who would kill for their daughters. She said, the case had nothing to do with cheerleading. It was about competition. And perhaps it was also about Channelview, a small canal-side town where football was king. Thus, being a cheerleader made you a queen. Perhaps in this town, that reward seemed like something worth killing for. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Wanda Holloway, among the many sources we used, we found Mother Love, Deadly Love by Anne McDonald Mayer and The Cheerleader Murder Plot by Mimi Schwartz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson